Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. In this episode, I sit down with Sanjula Jane. Sanjula is among the brightest and most creative voices in healthcare today, and so I was eager to make the connection. Her career began with the Health Management Academy, where she worked with the leadership of the largest and most successful healthcare delivery systems in the country. She's also taught graduate level and continuing education courses in healthcare economics, healthcare services research methodology, and health policy at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health and at the Center for Disease Control. Her work is published in some of the most prestigious healthcare journals in the nation, including the American Journal of Managed Care, Health Affairs, the Journal of Healthcare Management, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. In addition, she is co-founder of Think Medium, a think tank for healthcare leaders, and Dr. Jane hosts a podcast called Her Story, where she and her guests explore leadership opportunities for women in healthcare. She's currently on the faculty at Johns Hopkins teaching courses in digital health entrepreneurship, population health, and the data-informed trends shaping the future of the healthcare economy. She is both an educator and strategic advisor to the senior leadership teams of the nation's largest healthcare delivery systems, as well as Fortune 500 pharmaceutical and medical device companies. By now, you can see why I was excited to have a conversation with Sangela. But her most recent move may be her biggest opportunity yet. As the Senior Vice President of Market Strategy and Chief Research Officer for Trilliant Health, Sangela is transforming the way we think about analytics in healthcare. Taking a page from the playbook of the largest consumer brands in the world, Trilliant seeks to combine and organize demographic, psychographic, and health-related information to create highly customized predictions about consumer health behaviors and needs at a hyper-local level. The result for companies is better service and lower cost for everyone. Trilliant is the information engine of that new strategy and a perfect match for the brilliance and curiosity of a mind like Sangela James. I invite you to join me now as I sit down with Sangela at the Trilliant offices in Nashville, Tennessee. Are you ready to connect? Angela Jane, welcome to the Groves Connection. Thanks for having me, Dr. Groves. 
Yeah, it really is a, a pleasure. We've we've worked together for a few years off and on when you uh, were at your position at the Health Management Academy. And we'll get into that later on because I have some questions about your work there and how it influenced you and so forth. But what I like to do is I like to start with how did you become who you are today? Where did you come from, et cetera? So why not start with telling us where you were born. Take us all the way back to birth elementary school days. Uh, did you know then that you wanted to do something like what you're doing now, or was this something that evolved over time? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Toronto, Canada, so I am a dual citizen Canadian-American. And as a young child, I mean, I didn't really quite know what I wanted to do, but I aspired to be a physician, and I think a lot of that stemmed from seeing a lot of chronic conditions in my family, so both sets of grandparents parents, had a lot of chronic disease, and I had this just fascination with where does disease stem from? You know, how does diet and lifestyle influence that? But also just education, because, you know, growing up in an Indian family, you know, this is a different generation. They weren't exposed to things like what does healthy eating mean? And how does that translate yeah, to, yeah. you know, diabetes? And so, so, but, but let me let me just ask you, did you have any frame of reference, anybody in the family, uh, actually a doctor at the time? Not at all. So my I come from a family of entrepreneurs. All immigrants who came over started different businesses from, you know, clothing production to transportation to, you know, finance. And so I was kind of the black sheep that had this odd interest in, in healthcare, whatever that looked like at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about your uh, high school days. I mean, where did you go to high school and what were you thinking then? Yeah. So my family, my immediate nuclear family then moved to Tampa, Florida. And so that's where I did high school. It's a nice transition. Yeah. So a big <laughs> shift, you know, from the cold weather. And that's really where I was exposed to kind of sciences. So, you know, I did dance growing up. I did the debate team. I was still thinking about being a physician. But I think it was at that point that I realized I like thinking about information. So like debate hmm. was my favorite thing to do in high school. It was oh, kind of, right? yeah, yeah. it was, you know, going deep on topics, really kind of mulling through information. How do you make a, an argument to kind of convince someone to make a decision was how I was thinking about it. Right. Okay. So, so you did most of that research yourself when you prepared for a debate? Did yep. you ask for any help from mom, dad, siblings? No, they thought I was crazy that I was spending all this <laughs> extra time on top of homework to do extra yeah, homework, yeah. really. So it, was it a given that you were going to go to college? Is that a, a, a value in your family that uh, you get an education? And You know, education was strongly emphasized growing up. Both my parents went to college, but it was, you know, they came from pretty modest families. And mm -hmm. so, you know, for example, my dad emigrated from India and had to put himself through school. And so, you know, it was definitely an expectation you go to college that was... You had no other option. No other <laughs> option. But actually, you know, growing up, it was the expectation that you're going to also go to graduate school because coming from a family of entrepreneurs, of course. Right. You kind of grow up in that risk kind of high risk environment, I should say. And so it was, you know, they really wanted, you know, the children to have something more stable or what was perceived as stable, which right. comes from, you know, you'd be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that completely. So talk to us about how you made the choice on co how many colleges did you apply to? How did you make your choice there? So 
I, when I need to make a decision, I have to kind of get a lot of information, which is, I guess, why I love, you know, doing research. And so I was the crazy kid that applied to, oh gosh, I think it was 20 schools probably. And part of it was just, I didn't really know. And so I would just do research on different schools. I was eager to get out of Florida, mostly because I wanted to learn and kind of understand, you know, different areas and meet different people. And so um, my parents said, you know, you can go anywhere you want so long as you kind of figure out a scholarship to support you to do that. And so it was, okay, let me apply to as many schools and kind of explore my options. And in the end, gravitated towards Rice, which is a school in in Houston. And So what was it about Rice that attracted you? It was, I remember going to campus and it was this gut instinct where it was such a small family style environment, but it was very entrepreneurial. So for an undergraduate experience, you know, this most schools have a strong graduate presence. And so if you're studying the sciences, which is what I was planning to do, at that time, you're just kind of supporting the graduate students. But Rice was unique in that it was primarily an undergraduate focused institution. Right. And so what that meant is that it was really big on experiential learning. So if you were going to do research as a student, you're basically going to have the, the workload of a graduate student. So I was able to publish papers as a sophomore really? in college and working directly with faculty that in a lot of other schools, you know, you'd probably be supporting a graduate student and maybe being, you know, sixth or seventh author on a, on yeah, a paper. Yeah. Now, now I want to stop you for just a second. So you're talking about a bachelor's program Mm -hmm. and you're actually publishing first name author work. What kinds of things were you publishing at that time? So the second part of why I wanted to do Rice was because it was right across the street from the Texas Medical Center. Yes. And so a lot of the research I was doing was actually at the intersection of psychology and the clinical practice. So for for folks who don't know what Texas Medical Center is, give them a little bit of the flavor of, of what that's like to be in the middle of all that. How many institutions are there? I, I, oh, I don't even know. I've lost count, but it is officially the largest medical center in the world. And so it, it's like a mini city. Like it's, it was right across from campus. You walk in there and it's, I mean, just medical institution after institution. Yeah, I never knew that's where Rice was located. Yeah, I mean, there was the Bentop Community Hospital right there. And so my, you know, I did a lot of different things, but my research was primarily with MD Anderson. And so it was in this division called Human Factors, which at the time I didn't know what that actually was. Interesting, yeah. But it's a study within psychology, which is basically how do you look at interfaces and kind of the design of things that influence how to make decisions. Exactly. So human factors engineering is essentially what you were publishing on at that point? Yeah. So I I lucked out the PI that I was working with basically was we were working with MD Anderson to create, this was, you know, before iPhones were, you know, heavily popular, but it was the MDOSI, which was the MD Anderson Symptom Inventory. And so it was taking paper records of when cancer patients would come in the door right. and kind of say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how tired are you? And it was okay. just, you know, 20 questions, one to 10, you'd have to rate them. And they were paper forms. And the nurses were having to input this into the computers manually. Right. And so this project was basically taking one of the early versions of the iPads okay. and starting to visualize trend information for those symptom surveys over time so that when the patient came back, you know, for visit number 10, the physician could actually see, okay, I see that from last visit, you've gone up or down. That's a fascinating place to start. So if I understand correctly, part of the process was that they were moved from filling out a paper form on arrival or on admission or wherever this was in the process to using a a tablet so that you could capture it as data, correct? Absolutely. And so it was the data collection process, but then from a human factors point of view, it was actually how do we make that data usable on the receiving end for the provider who needed to 
to use that data to figure out what the patient actually needed. You very early on were thinking about how do we turn data into information is the way I like to think about it. Yeah, and it's funny until we've had this conversation, I never really put that that connection together, but... Yeah, 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 that really was my first foray into that. Wow, that that is, uh, I had no idea that you had gotten into it that early. So you've got your degree now. You've had some experience in turning data into information. Are you still thinking I want to be a doc? Yeah, so the quick story is I was also an EMT in college thinking, okay, let me get some actual clinical experience. So did all my shifts over at you know, Ben Tobb. Wow, ED. I didn't know. Yeah. So wait a minute, you were out there intubating folks? Well, and- I was an EMT basic, so I, okay. I couldn't do all the advanced things, but, you know, we would do the ambulance rides, saw a lot of patients with substance abuse to, you know, a whole range of cases there, which was really great for me to get a really, a pulse on what clinical care looks like. That was kind of your really, your first view of actual healthcare. It really was. Hands on anyway. Hands on, because to your point earlier, I didn't grow up in a family where I had that exposure. So I didn't really know what clinical practice looked like beyond going to, you know, physician, pediatrician as a kid. So how did that influence your decision making, do you think? I think that's where I started putting the pieces together that there's so much wrong in the system because I would be on a shift at 3 a.m. trying to admit a patient into the ED and, you know, would see all the paperwork that was needed yeah. or seeing the lines or seeing, you know, the care transitions. And, and wait times. Wait, and, and, yeah. and I didn't know enough. I mean, at that point, I didn't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. I really didn't. They right. don't teach you that in undergrad. So I, I didn't have the full concept of how big the problem was, but I was seeing those in pieces. And then I was thinking about information and how physicians were, you know, looking at their paper charts to figure out what was flipping happening. Through flipping pages, through pages. Yeah, so I was yeah. kind of seeing this. And then I was thinking about my family in Canada and how they had access to a government funded system and how they were, you know, getting all this care that they were constantly raving about. And I'm trying to understand, okay, so how's their system different than our system? So I just kind of had all these questions and I didn't quite put the links together. My answer at that time was still medicine because I was committed that it was healthcare, in fact, that I wanted to be in that space. Even with that early exposure, it was obvious to you that it wasn't functioning as well as it could or perhaps should. Yes. And so you didn't go to medical school. What happened? I still had this, you know, you get that gut feeling where like there's still something feels unsettled. Like I didn't have all the information I needed. So the last experience in college that was really formulative to me, and this is why I'm so grateful to Rice because they truly treated you, you know, eight, us, what, 18 year old as real adults in many ways was I actually saw my first board of trustees experience. I was student body president and I got to be in the boardroom gotcha. with okay, you know, yeah. university president and all the trustees. That's where I started seeing, okay, so how are decisions made at an organizational level? And so that's when I really knew, okay, so I'm seeing these clinical gaps on the front line as an EMT. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing, you know, data and information being a kind of big void here. But now how do you fix that? Okay, well, here's how decisions are being made. And I was also a psychology major. So I'm just generally fascinated by how (laughs) people think and and make decisions. And so all to say, I went on this process of probably doing 60 informational interviews. And so I said, well, I don't know what I want to do post-college. So before you decided what you were going to do, you interviewed 60 people? Yep. Who who were you interviewing? I basically would just go to anyone I could think of and say, do you know anyone who works in healthcare? Whether they're a physician or did lab science, whoever you were, I just said, anything broadly healthcare, introduce me. Wow. So I had decided that I was going to go to medical school a year later and I was going to take this gap year so I could really figure out where in healthcare I was was trying to fit the pieces together. I wanted to have this industry experience. You know, this has given us some great insight into how your mind works. (laughs) And, and it's a little scary, I got to tell you, Sanjali. I, I, I just, that 
level of attention to detail at that age is remarkable. I, it, did you come by that naturally? Is that just the way your mind works? Or was there something in your upbringing that led you to, to think about things that way? You know, the best thing I can think of is just the influence of, of people. I think I'm a better listener than, than talker, and I just love learning from people, and I, I'm just fascinated by every individual story. And so for me, it was growing up in a household where we socialized a lot. We entertained a lot. It was, yeah. you know, the whole Indian community was invited over to our house for, for dinners. And, you know, my first birthday party as a child, just to paint this picture, had 300 people at my grandmother's house. Now, there. were you the kid that was walking around asking everybody a bunch of questions at that age? I don't know about that, that <laughs> but just saying that I grew up in an environment where I was always around people and always, you know, was striking up a conversation. And, gotcha. you know, I think that part of me was kind of there from an early age. And I said, well, why don't I try to just learn from other people? Because you can't Google this stuff and right, there's no right. textbook yeah. for it. And so yeah. just, you know, I love coffee and I would just go sit at a <laughs> coffee shop and yeah. go have a bunch of coffees with folks. And it wasn't until I'd actually accepted a job offer through one of those connections, thinking I'd go more on the business consulting side. You know, I want to point out something here because it's fascinating to me. And, and and I've had sort of the same epiphany as I've been doing a lot of these interviews is, wow, the, the, you know, those connections are so critically important. And that may not have been what you set out to do. It wasn't a networking thing you were doing. You were asking legitimate questions to help you decide. But in the process of doing that, it is impossible to avoid making connections with people. And those connections can sometimes lead to some really fascinating things. And you're going to tell us what that thing was. Yeah, well, just to that point, though, it's a really good point. So I actually really hate the term networking because there's something about, there's something <laughs> My about apologies. No, no, but I, I think there's something about it that feels superficial to me. So gotcha. to your point, at the time, I wasn't thinking of it as networking. And I had a lot of my classmates who were on the business track and they were saying, I'm going to a networking event to meet these people. Right, and right. for me, and maybe it was a psychology major in me, it's like, I just really want to get to know these people. And the questions were never about me. And they were always like, you know, what do you do? And how did you get there? And yeah. what did you study? And, yeah. you know, and so it wasn't later that I realized, I guess maybe that is networking or it isn't, but there's well, this you know, connotation I, that it's networking means you go to an event and you try to get a bunch of business cards. Right. It's the intent that is very different. And I would wager that it's a much more authentic way to make real connections with people rather than feeling like somebody's shaking your hand because they want to get something from you. Right. 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 Yeah. But yeah, to your point, I went into a blind and I was just looking for insight and had these conversations. And so thought I would stay in Houston and, you know, try out consulting for a year. Yeah. And then it was just a couple of days before graduation. So I had made all my plans and I got connected to actually a colleague that we both know, Jarrett Lewis. Yes. And we had a mutual friend that was working on the, uh, the political polling for a presidential campaign. And so spoke with Jared and I said, well, so what do you actually do? And you know, what's this company that you work at? And we had a really great conversation and he probably used a bunch of terms that I once again, didn't know anything about. I didn't know what value-based payment or right, integrated yeah. delivery network actually was, but I was just fascinated with, you know, this organization that he described, which was the Health Management Academy. And it was this, you know, group up in DC that, you know, once again, DC was not on my radar because I had the stereotype that DC was kind of this policy capital and I didn't know anything about right. policy. Uh -huh. 
next thing I knew, I was talking to one of the co-founders and CEO at the time, Gary Bisbee, who you also know very well. I do. You know, I remember Gary calling me on a, on a Saturday, uh, probably a 7 a.m. call. And so I get on, on the phone with him and he starts asking me all these questions. I couldn't even tell you what they were at the time. But I'm pretty sure the answer to a lot of them was, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were things like, what do you want to do? How do you think about the future of health policy? And like I told you, I, I really didn't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we were just talking about different things and I probably did my thing and just asking him questions. Okay, right. so what is this company that you've built? What is your degree? And next thing I knew, you know, I get an email saying, you know, Dr. Bisbee would like you to come to DC. Don't really have the context for what I'm going for, but I show up to meet with Gary and he's planned this whole day for me to basically meet with, you know, 20 people in the company. At the time, the company was very small. Yeah, so I think yeah. there was, I met probably every person in the organization and just had conversations all day. Perfect for you. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, and they're all like, why are you here? And I said, well, I don't really know, but tell me about what you do. At the end of the day, you know, I'm about to fly, fly back home. And, you know, Gary says, well, we're not really hiring, but, you know, what did you think? And I said, oh, I, I know. I know you're not hiring. I'm, I'm not looking. He goes, well, we, we also don't hire anyone on the content side without a master's degree. And I said, yes, I'm fully aware. I, I don't know the difference between Medicare yeah, yeah, yeah. and Medicaid. So it makes total sense to me. He said, well, I'm willing to mentor you if you're committed to kind of learn and, you know, kind of resulted in kind of creating a role for me. So a theme nice. in my life is I've, I've never had a real job description. I've always kind of written them myself. Yeah, um, yeah. And we kind of created this fellowship position where I worked directly for, for Gary. And the, the bargain was basically I supported him in any project that he needed. So I traveled with him when he was meeting with CEOs to, you know, working on research projects. Got and yeah. that was my applied master's degree. You know, for listeners who don't have a good grasp yet on what the Health Management Academy is, you were there for how long? On and off, five years. Yeah. Five years. Can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what the Health Management Academy is? Yeah, so the Academy really is what I'll call a network of the largest 100 health systems across the country and their senior leaders. So it was bringing together... And yeah. you're talking about specifically hospital companies Ho hospital primarily. Hospital companies, yeah. yes. Yeah. You know, it was really with this premise that the priorities and strategies of the largest hospital systems were fundamentally different. They had to think differently than... Uh, running a physician practice or running right. a single hospital in one area. And so with that thesis, it was this idea of let's bring together the leaders of those organizations so they can learn from each other. So you'd yeah. bring all the chief medical officers like yourself together and mm -hmm. say, okay, so what are you up at night thinking about? How are you approaching it? It was really this close-knit um, community, if you will, you know, across the country where you were bringing together all these leaders with trying to solve the same problem in healthcare, but from different organizational perspectives. Yeah, it was, uh, it, and it was an organization that was very formative for me at that point in my career because I had uh, jumped into a role that I didn't understand very well and uh, gone from being a practicing physician to in administration, for lack of a better term. And I wasn't quite sure exactly what I was supposed to be doing, but I knew I had the opportunity to learn a lot in the situation when Dr. Henson gave me the opportunity <laughs> to participate. And, and Gary was kind enough uh, uh, with the committee there to accept me into one of the fellowship roles. And HMA does fellowships now for just about every uh, senior level in a healthcare system, whether they're CFOs, CEOs, board members have a, a, a regular meeting 
meeting. That's not really a fellowship. It's more of a meeting of the minds. You name it, and they have a, a program available for it. Now, you say on and off for five years. <laughs> Tell me what the off things were. Describe that period in your life. Yeah, so the first role was this fellowship, which was, you know, really my, I was a fly in the wall in all these really important conversations where I was just absor- absorbing and learning. You were a mentee, essentially. Yeah, yeah right? I really was. And, you know, not only from a healthcare point of view, but also what it took to run the organization and kind of build a business was right, the other right. lens that I had. So at this point, medical school, I realized was even further and further away from what I wanted to do. I was still committed to healthcare. And I... How did you make that transition? Because you'd been focused on being a doc since you were in elementary school. Yep. So walk me through how that shift occurred and what was the deciding factor for you? Because you're somebody who does your homework, right? (laughs) So so I'd love to understand that transition in your thinking. I think part of it was in that first year, that's where I realized I didn't know what a chief medical officer was or a chief operating officer was. And so I think at that point I said, wow, there are so many different ways to influence the system without having a clinical degree. If I was at a chief medical officer forum, I would talk to a bunch of the CMOs and say, okay, so tell me about your path. And more than just your path, what do you do? Like yeah. what, you know, what are you actually responsible for, even if it's more administrative, but what types of decisions are you thinking about? Mm-hmm. And I would have the same conversations with the COOs and the chief strategy officers. And what, what, what a great context to get a broad exposure in an environment where everybody is essentially relaxed and sharing information with peers, mostly non-competitive peers. Uh, so that's that's a great way to get a exposure to a broad range of, of healthcare opportunities. Is this all happening in the first this year is, or two? So or? this is all in the first year. Okay. Right. And then at that point, so I'd made the decision, gonna punt the medical school thing, but there was still this, I still wanted to have a graduate degree. Right. But I also knew... So you went and got a master's, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought about it, but it was, you know, then I had all these, everybody was saying, well, why don't you get an MBA or why don't you get an MPH or an MHA? And my thing was, well, but I need to feel good about why I'm getting the degree. It's a means to an end for what? Gotcha. And the best advice I ever got was, you know, graduate school really gives you a framework for how to think. I really was laser focused on that. So what type of exposure or training was I trying to better understand? And I I still needed more time to figure that out. So I knew it was going to be graduate school. I wasn't ready to go at that time. I was really enjoying the work that I was doing. I was lucky enough to be promoted to basically run the educational group for the CEO and board of trustees group, which is kind of- Wow, that's kind of like, uh, you know, getting an assignment that's right at the top, right off the bat. (laughs) I've I've been very fortunate. It's it's funny. I think I've only exclusively worked for CEOs, uh, so I don't know how that has panned (laughs) out from from first job to to current job. It tells us that you know how to manage egos, among other things, but go ahead. (laughs) But I think part of that fascination came from sitting in the board of trustee rooms back in college. I just, I think I've had a very unusual young person experience where I've just always been around CEOs and trustees. And so I somehow landed on this idea of maybe I should get a PhD. What's funny about that is I've never considered a PhD before Hmm. because the stereotype around it is that you're doing, you know, bench science and you're just kind of in the weeds and you're not dealing with people. And the only career path is academia. And I wanted to be at the center of action and I wanted to actually influence decisions. So it just didn't quite 
line up and make sense to me. But as I met the handful of PhDs that were more in the applied setting, you know, Gary was an example of that who had a PhD in chronic disease and so was now an entrepreneur. And so I met a handful of PhDs who were kind of technically trained, but they were working really at the front lines of the industry to, to help inform decision making. And so at this point, you don't have a master's in anything. You got a bachelor's degree. Gosh, I didn't know you could skip that step and go straight to the PhD. How did you figure that out? And and is that true for most people? I think not. It's but. not. So once again, I had kind of made this decision, you know, I want to get a PhD on the whim, but I'm also a pretty impatient person. And so, so well, <laughs> you know, do I want to spend two years getting a master's when I kind of know ultimately you know, what it is that I want to do. And well, you had sort of a master's equivalent, as I, you mentioned I earlier. really did. Yeah. I mean, I kind of felt like back to, if I'm going to get a degree, why? And so when I would do research on an MPH, for example, well, it was really learning kind of about the U.S. healthcare system. And I uh-huh. said, well, I kind of already, now I know what Medicare and Medicaid is. Yeah. And, I, and I, <laughs> I know what, you know, hospitals are and I know how they work with insurance systems. So I felt like I'd already gotten that knowledge more or less. And so I kind of said, well... I'm just going to apply anyways. To be honest, at that time, I wasn't really thinking about getting in. It was more about maybe it'll help me learn about the process. So it's really a self-reflection exercise more than anything. Interesting. Yeah, this is this is uh, right up your alley once again. (laughs) And, you know, a couple schools reached out and they said, got a really interesting perspective. And but we don't take students without a master's degree. So how Hmm. about you consider doing our master's program? Yeah. And, you know, so I entertained those conversations and I would do the site visits and meet with the faculty just to learn once again about the programs they, that they were you know, thinking about and the research questions they were exploring. And so some programs were slightly more clinical quality oriented, some were more access related to you know, Medicaid policy. So it was helping me actually think through, okay, here are the range of issue sets in healthcare, but if I'm going to do a PhD in some ways, you kind of have to to focus in on one. Once again, through a conversation, uh, through a couple of schools, you know, they said, well, but you're, you're not, you're a non-traditional candidate because they had recognized that I had this applied experience. Right. You know, I said, look, I, I recognize that. I don't know the first thing about economics. So I don't really know much about coding and programming on the data side. Mm-hmm. I felt like I needed a technical skill set to ultimately connect the dots between what I was hearing and those, you know, HMA Academy meetings where you had all these decision makers thinking about strategy. Right. But then what I was, you know, reading in the literature and kind of what the scientific, you know, papers were saying, like there just felt like this gap. And so gotcha. I said I want to get a degree that can help me understand how to bridge that. And so found my way to Emory and, you know, they took a chance on me and we had this open conversation where we said that I was going to come in, you know, not having the baseline that other students would have and that my path would be harder. And I remember the first day the program director sat me down and said, you know, the average year time for completion of a PhD in, you know, health economics, health policy is five years. The superstars around here usually finish in four. You probably should plan on being here for six or seven. Wow. And at that point, I didn't mind. I said, okay, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul because I know why I want to do this. I see the questions, the problems out there. Now I want to figure out how to help solve them. And I need this degree to help me, you know, get that conceptual framework to do that. You know, what's fascinating to me is I have always had a great deal of respect for the PhD because it's open-ended. With with an MD, there are hoops and some of them are tough hoops, but all you got to do is jump through them. 
And if you keep jumping through the hoops, you're going to get your MD degree. With a PhD, there are so many other factors involved and there's no set time limit. Uh, I, I just have a lot of respect for, for anybody who gets that degree and to get it without going through the process of being in, uh, uh, you know, the master's program, the graduate school is, is, must have been kind of scary. It was. I would say it was probably the most difficult things that I've ever done, but also the most rewarding. I mean, it was, I was the black sheep and my program director was right by calling it out. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was someone who had come from industry and it was kind of right. unheard of. Of Okay, yeah. so. Even frowned on a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It really right? was. Yeah. And it was like, well, do you know how to program in Stata? And all at that time I was like, well, what is Stata? And, right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people were skeptical and it was really hard. But what I've learned is, and you know this as a, as a physician, right? Like when you have a purpose or a mission of what you're trying to achieve, you figure out how to, how to that guides you through all of that. It do, you yeah. don't deviate from it. So that kind of keeps you motivated through all of it. So yeah, there were tough moments where I'd sit in class and I had no idea what was happening and, you know, but I just did whatever I needed to do to, to make up the difference and, and kind of pushing do, forward. Yeah. yeah. So you got your PhD. If anybody deserves to be called doctor anything, it's you. So from that point, you've got your PhD now. Now, is this happening while you're still working at the academy? No. So at this point, so this is the, the on and off. So at this point, I decided it's time to go to grad school. So I, I left okay. the organization, moved down to Atlanta. Gotcha. So you did it full time for how many years? Three years, actually. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Now I'm getting a little bit envious. Uh, so you got your PhD in three years when they suggested to you that six or seven might be a better estimate. And now what do you think? You know, I actually was thinking I'd go to a, what they called a research institute within one of the consulting groups. And so I was gotcha. having those conversations. And so I was gearing up to do all of that. And then next thing I know, I get a call from Gary. And um, <laughs> here he is again. Yeah, yeah. The Academy was going through um, a transaction. And so they were doing a deal with Walsh Carson, Anderson and Stowe, which is a leading healthcare and technology PE group, and okay. they were going through a transition. So how do we now take this incredible platform that, you know, the co-founders had built, you know, for the last 20 years mm -hmm. and really figure out how to support health systems and their partners, you know, beyond just the convening and think about research and health policy and additional programs and areas of investments. Basically asked if I would come and help them build their first kind of research PNL, if you will. Cool. And I said, again, well, right up your alley, uh, right? You know, once again, I think there are a lot of parallels between doing a PhD program and kind of being an entrepreneur. And, you know, I was really thinking about it. Well, you know, I was in my 20s and, you know, when else am I going to have an opportunity to build a mini business, if you will? Yeah, um, yeah. And if it doesn't work out, you know, I can always go back to the big company. That option is always going to be there. But the opportunity to do something at a specific point in time of a company's evolution, that's pretty rare and unique. Now, when was this? What year is this? That 2018. This is, this is a huge transition because the co-founders had led this organization for decades, yes. right? Uh, and, and now they're making a big transition and there's going to be new leadership and they call you in to help build uh, the research side of that organization. Is that kind of how it? It is. And, you know, part of the thought was in some ways I was this um, odd bridge between kind of the old, the old guard and the new guard Got because it. Okay, yeah. it was really important for the board to have someone that understood the core principles of what made the academy so right. special in terms of the Makes perfect member sense. experience. Yeah. 
but then also understood the research side and the mm -hmm. business side in a way that could bring in these new ideas. Because one of the areas, we did a lot of different things of survey research, basically, in my view, is an extension of peer learning, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, if you're not at a meeting with your fellow chief medical officers, because you're only meeting twice a year, well, how do you share information, you know, all the other weeks of yes. the year? And uh -huh. so here's where surveys and interviews come in where you can start saying, okay, well, here's how Banner is thinking about it versus here's how Advent's thinking about it. And you can kind of use data to extend that conversation. Right, right. We use a lot of survey research to, to educate is really how I viewed right, it okay. and uh, figured out a commercialization strategy. And it was really fun to kind of come up with what does research look like? And then, you know, the operational side of it, right, was, you know, bringing the team that you needed to do that and, and figuring out what that looked like for yeah, a division yeah. that has never existed before. And so figuring out as you go. Yeah, you know, that, and I'm, I'm thinking about the time span between the early 2000s and the late 2010s, I guess, a lot of stuff happened in healthcare. I mean, there were some huge transitions along that path. And so it wasn't as simple as we've got a stable industry and let's have, you know, fit this piece to that piece. I mean, you had to really think not only about uh, how to blend those two cultures, how to create something new that didn't exist before, but also how to do that. Uh, you know, the analogy is, is probably tired, but it's like, you know, building an airplane while you're flying it kind of thing. Uh, and, and I don't know, that gives me a good enough visual that I understand the complexity and the difficulty of that task. And that's kind of how this must have felt at times. I'm laughing because if you were to go back and ask my team, I would say in every team meeting, I probably made that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> it works very well. It, it mean, really does. And I had never heard it before, but that's really what we were doing. I mean, a lot happened in a very short amount of time. Yeah, it really did. And I'm following along here and I've, I've, uh, I think I understand the the path that you took. And th there is one fundamental that's that's uh, true at each step along the way, and that is your curiosity and your ability to connect with people. And in the process of asking legitimate questions that you want answers to, create relationships along the way that obviously have served you very well. So, so you were at the Health Management Academy until when? So I was there through uh, about April of 2020. So this is just very when, recent transition. Very recent, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was unplanned. And so, like once every, again, oh, once again, <laughs> this right? shouldn't so, shock us. Uh, now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm learning this is a theme of my life. And so back to you know not creating job descriptions. You know, the pandemic was really interesting because it really shook up the industry for, yeah. for many reasons. Yeah. But one unique opportunity came about um, actually from Hopkins. You know, they had called saying, we need to now go everything online and our faculty don't, you know, have that experience. And so, well, I've never taught online either. <laughs> but what was interesting is that the medical school at Hopkins was going through this evolution of to basically help our physicians kind of prepare for this future. And I think the pandemic really accelerated this. And so long story short, one of those key areas that they had identified was digital health entrepreneurship, which gotcha. is yeah. funny because I really know nothing about digital health, but their goal was trying to bridge the silos to say, well, there's all this innovation, new tech companies that are trying to solve very specific clinical needs, whether it's, you know, the Omada type model or Verta right. type model, right? And so, but ultimately they have to reach patients through right. the care delivery mechanism. And so I was asked to kind of bring this systems view perspective to help paint the picture of what are the policy trends? What are health systems thinking about? 
What are payers thinking about? Now, now, let me ask you, was this the first time that you're really getting into predicting the future of healthcare? Indirectly. I mean, I think through my, my previous you know, work at the Academy and presenting research, I ended up doing a lot of presenting to, to boards of health systems on, you know, here are some of the trends, you know, gotcha. from a data okay. point of view. Yeah. I was doing it in a very, to your point, I mean, I had never really thought about, I don't have the insight to predict the future, but I can tell you what I see today in terms of what the data is showing or, you know, what I'm hearing in the industry from surveys. And so yeah. we see the silos in healthcare. And I was realizing that I was working in a silo that in some uh-huh. ways, right. I, yeah. I was only in conversations primarily with health systems. And I said, well, yes. maybe uh-huh. I need to branch out and learn more about digital health companies. So wait a minute, can I take a guess? You started talking to people. <laughs> And yeah. doing research. I did, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. I just started reaching out to different, you know, founders of companies and built this curriculum. And so... And so uh, how long did you do that? Are you still doing that? Or, you know, tell yeah, me about... Yeah, so pandemic made us all work a lot more. And so, you know, through conversations, you know, and planning for the course and, you know, talking to founders, it led to, you know, different pieces started coming together. And I was being asked to do a lot of, you know, let's just call them consulting projects, speaking with different teams of different healthcare companies to help them understand, okay, during COVID, here is, you know, what, where the policy trends are going, whether it's, you know, telehealth reimbursement changing, or, you know, here's where some of the investments in digital health are changing. So it was kind of using information and data and kind of connecting it from different places. A little bit of a secret coming out soon, but was asked to, um, got a uh, publisher contract um, to do some writing. And so there'll be more on that coming soon. But part of that was to, you know, to your point about trends is what does the post-COVID healthcare landscape actually look like? Yeah, so, yeah. well, you, you'll have to let me know yep. <laughs> when that uh, writing is complete, because I'd love to have you back to talk about that. Yeah, and so I should have more updates for you uh, at the end of the year, but that's a big project that I spent a lot of 2020 working on. So, very nice, very nice. You know, nice. a lot of pieces kind of came together, and so really spent a lot of time heads down, you know, working on a lot of these things, thinking about, you know, the different trends across different silos of the industry. Quick question for you, and then we'll get back on track. How did you learn to write and what did you learn about yourself? You know, is there a time when you do your best writing? Do you do it in a certain way? Is there a process you go through? I would say I am a writer in progress, so I never really formally trained or learned it. But I think once you have to write a dissertation or write debate cases back in high school, you just have to do a lot of it and do a lot of it pretty quickly. And so a lot of it for me has been writing under pressure, believe it or not. And so I write best you know, in shorter periods of time versus if I say, you know, I've got six months to write something, I'm not going to make a lot of progress. So I have to say, you know, by the end of this week, I've got to write complete A, B, and C, but I'm a morning writer. So my best writing, um, this is actually how I wrote my dissertation. Uh, I would write from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., Every wow, day. we are talking morning. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. So that, those are my peak uh, writing hours. And still is that because you, you that's when your highest creativity and energy happen? Or is that because you feel like you need to get it behind you so you can, because the, the time that you're writing is interesting to me because most people are starting their day around <laughs> eight, right? Yep. And you've got a big piece of work under your belt by the time that comes around. Is that part of it? Feeling like it? I had never thought about that, actually. I mean, part of it is just, I'm, I think my mind is clear in the morning. So it's kind of getting all these thoughts out, having no distractions because gotcha. I, yeah. you know, well, nobody's going to distract you at 4 a.m. most well, likely. And, yeah. you know, I, when you're trying to procrastinate from writing and you're stumped on something, your instinct is to look at your phone or check your email. Yeah, but at yeah. that time of morning, nothing is really kind of coming in. And so exactly, it's really yeah. kind of my window to 
to really force myself to, to not think about anything else besides what I needed to write about. It is intrinsically protected time in a way. It know. is. Yeah, it fascinating. Is. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by how people write and when they write. And it's not unusual to hear people say that they do it in the morning. Usually not quite that early in the morning, but it's typical uh, for many of the writers that I've spoken to for them to set aside time in the morning and not do a nine to five for six weeks kind of a thing. And the fun fact on that is, you know, even on a weekend. So you would think during the weekdays, you know, when you've got a lot more happening, that's why you have to compress it in the morning. But I find even if I have a full Sunday free, I still have to write at that early time in the wow. morning. Okay. And I still do it now. I know we'll, t we'll talk about, you know, the, the blog that I write now um, with Trillion, but even that sometimes I have to still write it in the morning. Yeah, and, and for our listeners, tell them about that blog because it, it's got some fascinating stuff in it and I've enjoyed just over the last several weeks to months, can't remember, but I've really enjoyed that. So, so tell us how we can find that. Yeah, thank you for that. So um, it's called The Compass, and The Compass actually was this idea that originated you know, during COVID. So as I was having these conversations, doing a lot of writing, thinking about you know, how to give people information to make better decisions, you know, I've never viewed myself as a consultant because I don't have the expertise to tell anyone how to run a hospital or you know, how to create drugs. That's just... Not, I'll never have that expertise, nor do I have the interest to do that. But I view a lot of my role as how do you bring disparate pieces of information and present it in a way that might provide some context for, for someone to kind of keep in mind when they're making whatever decision they need to make. Got it. And so the origin... Is that what the compass is, really? So the compass was kind of this quirky thing where I felt like, what am I actually trying to do? I'm trying to guide people. I, I'm not trying to kind of tell them what to do, but I'm trying to point them in a direction. Got and it. so that's okay. how the name kind of came about. Oh, yes. And so, you know, I'm a little slow, but I got no, it. No, <laughs> it's, it's a little subtle, but that, that was why I named it, named it that. And it was, you know, being a researcher, I think a lot about data yeah. as that guide. Gotcha. And so it's a weekly uh, newsletter that goes out on Sundays and it's purposely intended to be pretty short. Mm -hmm. And the format is really supposed to be um, what I call data stories. So how do we look at a couple of trends happening in the industry, but I can back it up with data to kind of tell, paint this picture of something that's happening directionally. So, so, so there might be, at least in a, a technical sense, opinion. However, it's backed by specific data that drives uh, that impression. Is that That's accurate? right. So I actually always focus on the data trend first. It's actually something that I, I learned from one of my PhD mentors said, whenever we start doing research or we want to write something or, or make an argument about something, draw the picture. What is your hypothesis of what you think the trend is or, or what you're expecting to discover. For example, we just wrote about Walmart and right, it's, right. you know, what does it mean for healthcare? What data is available about Walmart? What do we actually know as it relates to healthcare? And, you know, you could think about reading their financial statements, you know, kind of think about how much revenue is coming in from healthcare services. Right. You could think about geography, where are they located? So I usually kind of start with, you know, these different aspects or metrics related to a topic. Gotcha. Okay. And then go out and try to find that data, create that story, look at what the trends actually are, are telling us. My original goal was to keep it at 250 words. That is kind of, it's been flexing between about 350 to, to about 600 words, but really just to state the 
the trend, like to define it and quantify it and actually very little opinion. It's mostly just to say, this is happening and this is what I think it kind of means directionally, but interpret the data as you will for what whatever vantage point in the industry that you sit in. That uh, you just shot down my next question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. It is impossible, at least I believe it is, for us as human beings not to have some notion of what we think something means, right? And I wanna understand if when you look at that data and you come up with a hypothesis, is the next step trying to prove yourself wrong or trying to prove yourself right? So I'm probably a bad researcher in this regard because what you're asking is the the typical scientific method, right? Where you should actually formulate you a hypothesis and, and do yeah, all yeah. of that. It, it was a trick question and you, uh, you, you <laughs> wriggled right out of it. But uh, I'll say I need more information. I may not use all of it, but I'm trying to bring it from, you know, if there's 20 articles and there might be, you know, two words from each of those articles that trigger a thought, I kind of need gotcha. to absorb a lot of it. So it's less about having a hypothesis for me. It's more about, oh, reading this set of data or these interesting trends, like, I think I see a pattern here. I try to challenge myself to say, is there something out there in the data that we have not even kind of identified as opposed to showing a relationship between, you know, A and B? That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the punchline, obviously, is that most people will start out trying to prove what they already believe. What I hear you saying is you're just following a data trail and seeing where it goes mm-hmm. for the most part. The best diagnosticians, by the way, are not the physicians that quickly come to a hypothesis on what disease the patient may have, the best ones leave their minds open for the longest period of time. And, and it, I, I just think it's a good practice to remember that we are so prone to self-validation and ignoring data that doesn't agree with what we're thinking and overemphasizing data that does agree with what we're thinking. You kind of skirt around that whole issue by saying, look, it's not that I want to make a hypothesis. What I want to know is what's going on. So I'm curious and I follow a data trail. And then I present it to everybody. I pull pieces from different areas, pull it all together uh, in in a coherent package, present it and say, what do you think about this? It's a really good point. I had not thought of it that way, but you're right. And and part of it is I'm such a visual person. And so the origins of this really were... I can't even, I can look at a spreadsheet of a bunch of data, whether it's claims data or, you know, financial data. And I could never really put to, you know, some people can look at a spreadsheet and they can say, oh, that that's going up or it's yeah, going yeah, down. Yeah. And it would take me hours to come to that conclusion. And part of it is I'd have to you know, plot it out or draw it and sketch it out. And so there's something about the physical engagement with the data that that helps you learn it, yep. essentially. And are you still teaching at Johns Hopkins now? So I am, but I've scaled back because uh, so once again, the next opportunity kind of came out in the progression. Yeah, so I want to get to that one. Let's talk, talk to us about that opportunity. So, you know, as I was having more conversations and, you know, people were asking for what data trends are you seeing? And I was, you know literally getting ready to start writing this newsletter because I felt like that was my way of scaling the insights and information right. across, you know, different stakeholders. Once again, you know, when those opportunities arise, you're like, well, what is it that I actually want to do again? Yeah, and, you, yeah. you know, you start, you know, reflecting again. So this this friend and mentor, you know, said, huh, it sounds like you're thinking about data in a very different way where you're now trying to not just do survey data, but really think about market data and kind of think about the variation in context. Because the thing I've been trying to chase after for so long is how do people make decisions? I'm trying to figure out how to equip people with the right insights to do that. What data do you use? 
And for a large part of my career, it's been, it's opinion data because someone completes a survey and they say, this is how I am thinking about it. This is how the top executives in such and such an industry believe. Yeah. Right. So, you know, CEO of organization A believes that, you know, this is going to be the trend. CEO B believes this. And that's really valuable perspective. Right. But right. how do you know, like, what's the, the wraparound information that you need to actually make the decision to know that see if CEO B copied what CEO A was trying to do with that, that fact set doesn't translate over to that market or that organization right. or that patient population. Isn't, isn't there a whole, uh, an issue around groupthink as well? I mean, I can't remember the name of the author that looked at predictions. And, and what he discovered was that there are some people who are very good at predictions. They're usually not the experts. Part of the problem is once one gets so immersed in a single role with a single set of data and a single set of colleagues, it becomes very easy to, frankly, see things that aren't there. Yeah, I I think a lot about this idea of best practices. And I think that's what our industry gets wrong, whether it's treating a patient or making a strategic decision. But there is no best practice because every scenario is different. And so the best practice in the clinical literature, not to simplify it, right, but would say, you know, take your medication at this time, eat this, you know, whatever those things look like. Mm -hmm. But where is the customization and what are those nuances that have to be tweaked to adapt to that individual patient's preferences. Okay, I'm, I'm going to push back on you just a little bit there. And I could be wrong. I, I, I certainly am plenty of the time. When I think of a best practice in healthcare, I'm thinking of a you know common denominator, mm. a la Brent James. Within that, there has to be a lot of customization. So the concept is mass customization, right? I mean, there's, there may be a, a set of parameters within which one works to customize. Does that make sense? For sure. I And I definitely think that there are kind of guideposts or directional things. And so I'm still playing with the nomenclature, why the, you know, what, what the alternative is. But the working concept is this idea of informed practices. All to say, ah, right, is there's a base set of principles, but what are the unique circumstances that define what decision you kind of make? And really having conversations in the industry of, okay, so what I need to do, you know, we're sitting here in Nashville, what I need to do for my patients in Nashville is going to look a lot different than what I do for my patients in Atlanta. And here are the things why. It's not just geography. It could be, you know, the leadership. It could be the facilities in the area. There's so many different factors that influence that. Right. So, so, So let me give you an analogy in the practice of medicine. And I want to hear how you think about this. So on the one hand, you've got pure creativity, right? I am the doctor and I've read all this stuff. Maybe I don't remember it all, but I know how I was trained and what my partners do. And and I'm going to craft for you out of nothing this beautiful way to take care of your diabetes. On the other side of that equation is no, look, that's that's the craft of medicine. And we do know something about the delivery of medicine down. Furthermore, you know, that was back when the, the PDR was maybe a quarter of an inch thick and you could keep all the drugs in your head and all the protocols in your head. That is the craft of medicine. We need knowledge management now. And the reason there have to be informed practices, I'll use your term, is because nobody can keep all of that knowledge in their head anymore. There have to be some basics. And and the physician's job has gone from 
remembering everything that I have to do and when I have to do it to, yeah, I've got this protocol, but I'd better pay attention because everybody's different and this isn't going to fit them. This is also a Brent James concept that I'm stealing uh, shamelessly. Where do you sit on that continuum? I'm still trying to understand your notion of I don't like best practices. Yeah, I think and it's, it's a good push because I think the clinical context is probably a little bit different from the kind of organizational context. But I, okay. but, let right, me, but let me reframe, maybe back to kind of the data and the trends. A lot of what I, I think that the problem is, is we tend to make assumptions based off trends that we think apply to 100% of the pie. And so there are certain things that only are common for 10 or 15 percent of the population because we don't quite understand those factors that influence those trends. It's human nature to assume, oh, well, then that must be true of the whole population. So I'll I'll give you an example. You know, we just uh, worked on a study looking at, you know, telehealth trends because everybody wants to see post-COVID, what does that look like? And yes, like we all know telehealth, we've seen rapid adoption. There's a lot of things about it and there's so many people who have written on it, but that has primed us all to say, okay, the best practice is, you know, telehealth is going to be good for these cases and it works here. Okay, Okay. but, but let's dial it back. Let's look at, okay, does that trend apply to all patient segments? And when I say patient segments, it's not just Medicare versus Medicaid versus commercial. It's how does it trend differently within Medicare women versus Medicare men? How does it trend differently between commercially insured women ages 30 to 39 versus, you know, 50 to 59? Gotcha. And so when you start pulling back the layers and dissecting how these trends apply to different I'm, I'm using the example of you know, population segments, but it could be organizations, it could be market, whatever it may be, zip right. code. Then you start seeing a very different picture. And so my, my point around best practices is if you start unpacking those layers, is there a best practice for, for telehealth for, you know, across the board? Probably not, yeah, but I think gotcha. there's an informed practice for the Medicare age, you know. Okay. And, if and, and, I, yeah, I have I'll to articulate you. that a little bit better, but that's kind of the working kind of No, I'm, I'm following what you're saying. I, I think what I hear you saying is that th- there are two kinds of errors, right? And, and to go back to the uh, medicine analogy, the error that this doctor is going to make over here where he's crafting medicine for you, he's going to forget stuff, there's stuff he's not going to know, he's going to make that kind of error. This guy over here where he's got some structure around it. It's like, okay, here, you know, here are the targets you want to hit in terms of the outcomes. Here are the, uh, the usual medications that one puts on first, second, third. The error he's going to make is thinking that all he has to do is sign that and it's ready for prime time. And that is equally as dangerous an error as the first one. Your exposure is almost exclusively to that kind of error. Yeah. Whereas mine, uh, you know, started probably in a very different place with the, the, the error of the craftsman, if you will. So it, it, I think we're coming to the same place, but from different perspectives. So I think I follow you. Yeah. And, you know, the last example, maybe, you know, we think a lot about health systems, right? So we, yeah. were, we were talking about this earlier. So, you know. Inner Mountain and Geisinger's experiences as health systems, you know, yes. they're leading organizations and they've done a lot of great work in population health management and, and, you know, I can make a whole list there. Well, so their lessons learned and their best practices may not actually work in the Phoenix market, right? Because for so many reasons, but we don't, we're not trained really as an industry or it's not normalized as an industry to say, 
okay, well, what are the factors that vary between Intermountain and Banner? There are definitely similarities, but I would argue that there's a lot more differences. But the foundational principles of population health strategies. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah you know, are there for everyone, but they have to be tweaked. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So, so we, I I took you way off track again. So where are we? We are at uh, Johns Hopkins. We've been teaching. We've cut back on our teaching. We're writing a blog called The Compass. And then what? Yeah. So, you know, through all these conversations, all these thinking, I'm, I'm getting ready to start writing this blog and get a call from, or was introduced, I should say, to the CEO of this company called Trillient Health based in Nashville company that I, you know, had never heard of. Um, it's a data data and predictive analytics company that really brings together claims data, consumer data, population data, just all the data sets you can think of in some ways, healthcare and non-healthcare, and really puts together a individual patient view. And that includes demographics. Demographics well, yeah. and behavioral. I mean, there, there's a whole host of data sets. You know, the yeah. best analogy that I think about, you know, think about Amazon or political campaigns. Gotcha. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. all these consumer brands have so much information on individual consumer preferences and how they behave. You bet. And we talk a lot about consumerism and healthcare, but we don't actually have the data to do that. And so Trillion has all the data and they use machine learning and, and all of these tools and methodologies to, to stitch all these pieces together so that you can have that consumer view. I started learning about Trillion, you know, through this conversation with our CEO and I said, well, that's too good to be true. Like, you know, we talk about these things, but you're actually building that and, yeah. you know, started learning more about it and realized that a lot of what I was trying to do in terms of guiding the industry of where the trends headed, you know, ultimately I didn't have all the data that I would love to have to be able to do that. How do we really use data and predictive analytics on top of the data to make better decisions that are contextualized for specific scenarios, whether that's market or behavioral profile of a specific consumer segment. So I'm going to summarize that as data Disney world for Dr. Jane. Yes. (laughs) I love that. It's true. It really was. I, I remember getting on the phone with Hal the CEO and I said, okay, like it just, that sounds way too good to be true. I mean, you're like, <laughs> there's no way that all of that exists, right? Yeah, That's the yeah. dream. And, um, you know, I, I didn't believe it until I saw it and put all the pieces together. And basically to your point, it's this treasure trove of unlimited data that I have to write these data stories and go look through it and see, you know, what are the trends? What are the patterns? What are the things that we're not thinking about that may be becoming trends that we need to prepare for that are going to come impact us 10 years from now? All right. So I'm going to start asking you some uh, some specifics around uh, data and trends, because I know everybody is, is going to be curious by this point. What do you think are the principal trends post-pandemic that health systems, payers, patients, anybody should be aware of? That's a loaded question. We could be here for five hours. <laughs> um, let me take that one step back for a second. I think it's probably less about the trends, but it's this idea of how do we think about all the noise and different things happening. And so the framework that I like to think about all the trends in the ecosystem, being a health economist, I guess I'm a little bit biased here, but this idea of supply, demand, and yield. And so when I when I say that, what I mean is, okay, so the supply is who are all the people who provide a care service, whether that's the hospitals, health systems, physician groups, at, you know, today that means Walmart and telehealth providers, yeah, right? Yeah, some whole, of them overlap a lot. A lot of yeah. them overlap. So there's a, there's a broader set of suppliers in healthcare. And so there's a series of trends that exist in, in that domain, which we'll come back to. Then I think about demand. So who are the consumers that actually 
are creating the demand for those services. Right. And I think there's a, there's a broad definition there, but it's from anything from your actual clinical need for service, you know, chronic conditions, mm-hmm. to your actual preferences as an individual. Do you like to see your physician virtually or do you like to go in person? And, you know, how often do you like to see the doctor? And do you like to exercise? Like there's a whole host of preferences that we have that dictate how we want to receive care, when and, and how frequently. So that's kind of all on the demand side. And then ultimately it's the, intersection of those two that create yield, which really is kind of the cost of care and how expensive is care and, you know, where we allocate our resources. And as you know, consumer, if I'm making, you know, decisions of, you know, where I want to go. And of course, there's a policy layer on top of that in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, how incentive schemes affect, you know, how much we pay for things. All to say, when you look at all the trends and, and all those areas, you know, there's a lot within that. And what I've found in, in some work that we're doing right now is at the end of the day, post pandemic, we have more supply than there is demand. And because of that, that is creating this unsustainable yield, in effect, unsustainable kind of high prices that are artificially inflated. So what do I mean by that? It means that we're seeing so many people enter the healthcare market in a variety of different areas, right? Behavioral health, telehealth, right? you know, post-acute care, whatever it, it CVS, may be. CVS, Walgreens, yeah. Iora, you know, Walmart, uh, 98.6, uh, Teladoc. Right. In it, addition to traditional uh, services. Yeah, and the traditional hospitals in our communities where we, as we saw in COVID, I mean, at the end of the day, it was the hospitals and the health systems that were treating that patient population, yeah. right? So yeah, there's some things you can't virtualize. You have all yeah. these suppliers based off the assumption that there's going to be this ever-growing increase in demand, and we could spend a whole hour to kind of defining demand, but uh, I'll pick on telehealth again because that's an easy analogy, but, you know, everyone's saying that telehealth, you know, the demand for telehealth is so large, but no one has actually really quantified that. I, well, we, we just did, but, you know, it's... <laughs> but up until now, there has been no number thrown out of, Mm -hmm. okay, like who is asking for it? Who is using it? How much demand is there? And so without that information, we've seen a lot of supply that was in the market well before the pandemic, a lot that kind of emerged during, and we're going to continue to see. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this mismatch is kind of happening. And so- Interesting. That yeah. would be, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack within that. But I think when you think about the post-pandemic economy, health economy, it really is this uneven, there's this mismatch. And ultimately that mismatch is what's creating this mismatch of resource allocation and why, you know, certain areas see things differently. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So one of the purposes of this uh, podcast is to get a variety of different perspectives on how to fix healthcare. Now, you could argue that there's nothing to fix because as we talked about earlier, it's functioning exactly the way it's designed. You know, there's there is no mistake here. People are following the incentives and uh, and maybe that's a clue, I don't know, but but in your view, what do you see as the fundamental steps to move us towards what has been simplistically called the quadruple aim, right? It's better quality, a better experience for the consumer, and in some cases a patient, in some cases not, somebody seeking information. Lower cost, for sure. I mean, we're all sort of reeling from healthcare costs and, and still the number one cause of uh, private bankruptcy in this country, which is uh, unconscionable. And Johns Hopkins uh, docs have been at the forefront of documenting a lot of these abuses and and then a better experience for the docs too because we know burnout's a problem. So what are the fundamental steps? What would you say if somebody came to you and said, Dr. Jane, you've been looking at all this stuff. You, you come in with a fresh perspective, a new perspective. You've got tons of data. 
what do we need to do as a society? And a huge question, yeah. you know, but I figure that we can have this problem solved before the hour. <laughs> I'm up for the challenge. No, I mean, I think it comes down to, to core principles and the, there are two major gaps okay. that I think, you know, are, are limiting our progress in the industry. I think one is this idea of silos. You know, it's amazing to me that I have conversations, you know, with On the Hill and in kind of the policy sphere, how little they know about the realities of health systems and, you know, the impact that they have in their communities or how many individuals they actually employ and reconcile that with, you know, what are their priorities and what's happening on the pharma side and the payer side. And so we have these historical silos. And so we're all working for the same cause, but yet we're not aligned kind of on the same on the same team. And there's a lack of awareness of these different players and how they come together, which, you know, basically leads to kind of mismatch incentive schemes, right? And so you've got pharma doing one thing and you've got providers doing one thing. And so, you know, conceptually, we have to figure out how to start seeing more of that alignment and intersections, you know, between that. And that's not just the player, you know, the suppliers, it's the policymakers, it's it's consumer groups, it's non-health. You know, there's a lot of people that have to come to the table. Right. That's one piece of it. But underlying all of that is the right information to act on it. So, you know, I'll pick on the policymakers, whether it's CMS coming out with new payment models, there's a lot of data and research that's being done on the success of those programs. But to make decisions within the confines of our kind of current incentive system, the way that's meant to design, I don't think that every player has all the information that they need kind of across those silos. If we all kind of broadened the problem set and really try to understand what was happening with our other healthcare kind of partners beyond just kind of the lanes in which we think about and could actually quantify that and measure that, I think we would all have a better fact set to then start making decisions that can get us to the triple aim or quadruple aim, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are so many things that are coming to mind. We'll have to do probably a whole nother show to unpack all of them. One is uh, incentives, you know, a big piece of the pie. Government is responsible for over half of all healthcare payments now. And the government is still mostly in the fee-for-service mode. And that drives certain behaviors in over-treatment. The other thing that came to mind as you were, were speaking Speaking is some of these silos are by design, right? Uh, the, some for good reason, some not. But the end effect, you're right, is that you can only see so far before you come to a silo wall and you can go around the corner, but now you can't see behind you anymore. You can only see what's in that silo and so on and so forth. And, and then the other is around, and, and maybe both of those contribute to the problem of price opacity, for lack of a better term, the opposite being transparency, right? It's not a market, essentially. So how does data help us move to better incentives to serve the, the the issues that we have today and towards more of a market, which we know when real markets exist, and I'm not saying that unbridled capitalism is the solution either. Obviously, we've learned that there has to be some level of oversight. Usually that has to be by a government body of some kind. But how does data help us get to that place where we have more transparency, more interoperability, and closer to a real capital market than what exists in healthcare today. I think ultimately the consumers are 
have started to drive that change, right? So healthcare, to your point, if you look at any other kind of regulated consumer industry, I, you know, was traveling earlier this week, so you know, I'll pick on airlines and Uber. We know that prices for a flight or an Uber ride are going to vary based off of time of day, how many drivers there are out there, the demand, right? Like it comes back to yes. supply, demand, and yield. And you know, they're 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 operating within the confines of economic principles, and they use data to do that. So yes, okay. You know, airlines can adjust their prices based off real-time data on how supply and demand is changing instantaneously and how it's changing in, you know, certain markets. Gotcha. Same thing with Uber, same thing with any consumer good like Amazon and Walmart, right? There's a lot of industries that are ultimately serving the consumer that, that use those levers to, to drive price and, and it's supply and demand. But healthcare hasn't done that. And that's where data comes into play because our industry is no longer the traditional healthcare industry because you have historically what I'll call consumer companies like Amazon and Walmart coming in. And so they're operating by these principles of economics, right? right. They're thinking about supply and demand. I mean, Uber and Lyft are now in healthcare too, right? And so yes. you have all these new players that are used to operating businesses with the consumer at the center, thinking about supply, demand, and yield. And by the way, using a ton of data to help them understand those, those forces and how right. they're changing you know, by the hour, by the day, right, in real time. And then traditional healthcare is on the other end of the continuum that not only are they not thinking about supply, demand, and yield, but then they don't have the data to begin to understand the real magnitude of it and how it's changing. You know, even as a researcher, I'll, I'll pick on this in academic research, right? By the time you write, publish a paper, you know, it's using data from two years old, yeah, right? And yeah. so things change so fast, but yet our decision-making trajectory and our ability to make decisions doesn't match that pace. And so to answer your question, I mean, I think data is really this, this bridge that can help us have visibility into the fuller picture and then use those levers to then ultimately, you know, bring costs down and figure out, you know, where the, the needs are. And, and ultimately it's all about the consumer. That is a great answer. And so if I can, if I can uh, summarize what Trilliant does to make sure that I understand it. Trilliant is an aggregator of data from many, many disparate sources that are all about the consumer and that consumer's behavior in the context of the healthcare market. And it, it's not just that, but it also has a machine learning that is crunching this data constantly to try and come up with trends and, and understand trends. Not that are necessarily, if there's a prediction, it's that they will continue, I guess, because it's really talking about what's happening. Is that accurate? In yeah, you I think the missing piece to what you just said is this idea of the predictive piece. So historically in our industry, we've used historical data to make decisions about the future. Right. What a lot of our tools at Trillion allow us to do is taking all these data, but then forecasting it based up all the assumptions of the trends happening. So given the fact that during COVID, a lot of people moved to different cities. Right. Given the fact that we all have different behavioral profiles, right? Thinking mm -hmm, about how mm -hmm. we make decisions. Given the fact that we have all this scientific innovation and drug therapies that are changing the prevalence of disease and how we treat people. There's so many yes. factors that influence 
the future. And so using these models with not only the historical data, but then our contextualized where the trends are headed, it actually can, for, we can forecast, you know, scenarios and the likelihood of that at the market level. And so, you know, what does the demand for digestive surgeries look like, which might be different than the demand for, you know, orthopedic surgeries? Gotcha. And what are the levers and factors that influence, you know, those shifts? Why is it going up? Where is it going down? So that organizations can prepare for that reality and make decisions accordingly. So in its simplest iteration, it is designed to inform leadership of healthcare organizations about what to expect in terms of supply, demand, and the consequences of that so that they can make smarter decisions about the allocation of resources to basically improve their efficiency and take strategy out of the realm of opinion into the realm of data-driven strategy. Is that accurate? Spot on. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up because I don't want to exhaust you because I want you to come back. But my final question is this. The future of healthcare, not just in the U.S., but in the world, you a pessimist or an optimist? I'm an optimist because, yeah. you know, there's so much innovation. There's so much convergence happening in different ways. I mean, it's all there. We just have to figure out how to, to bring the pieces together and make sense of it. There's all the answers are out there. We just have to stitch them together. That is a fabulous place for us to wrap up. But with one more prediction, this time from me. And my prediction is that Dr. Sangela Jane will be a big part of that uh, going forward. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. And I hope you'll agree to come back because I have so many more questions. I learned so much in this session. I've got to process it a little bit uh, before I come back with more. Thank you, Dr. Gross. This is really fun. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Groves Connection.